0: It's not my dad, bro.
1: He's going to do the process. We're going to have to pay him. <laughs> <laughs> Nibdi. <inaudible> In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy Prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ali Muhammad. Okay, so after a couple of weeks of break, Insha'Allah we will continue where we left off and then after we can talk about what happened in the break some of you are Yeah, okay So as a quick recap for those of you who missed the last jalsa, the last jalsa, because a lot of people were away were uh, Busy or could not make it What we talked about we gave a brief overview of the different Islamic disciplines and sciences and we the the topic was basically to explain that in Islamic sciences we need research that has to be done in the same way that we see for instance in the academic fields sometimes I think some of us think that religion is this very static uh, you know building or very solid construct that never changes it was revealed and Whatever was revealed 14 centuries ago remains intact and everybody the big scholars know exactly what it is Exactly as it was revealed and that's what we teach and that's what we learn and that's religion So the point of the discussion that we had at the last Lecture the last time we saw each other for those of you who are not here just so that you know what you missed Is to make sure that everybody understands first of all what are the big Islamic? sciences, what are the big Islamic fields And once we understand what all those fields are and what we study in each one of them when someone says I'm studying religion What do you mean by religion? Because there are all these fields. We talked perhaps about 10 or 12 of these fields And the point was to show that there's new work that needs to be done in all of these fields Just like when you go to university and you're about to do a master's or a PhD you're teacher, your supervisor, is going to tell you there are fields that have already been studied a lot. And it's probably going to be very difficult for someone to come and to show a new contribution in those fields. But there are fields that have really not been studied a lot. They need people to go in and do some good research. And so, of course, if you go in in a field where a lot of people have already done a lot of research, You already have a lot to work with, but it's going to be, the difficulty is that you have to come up with something no one has come up with, and to explain why this is new, and why you're the genius who found it, and all those before you who touched on the same topic were not able to reach the same conclusion. And if you study a field where not many people or no one has ever researched that field, the difficulty is you don't really have a lot to work with. So you have to be what they call a pioneer. You have to be someone who does fundamental research You have to lay the foundation of a new discipline or new question and find a way to start discussing and researching that topic Islamic sciences are in the same way exactly. There are fields that have been studied a lot and For someone to come and say I have a new interpretation. I have a new understanding You have to explain why yours is new and how come is it that you're the first to come up with this when so many before you, very competent, very big scholars, were not able to reach the same conclusions? So that's one. And we actually have fields where not a lot of work has been done. As the example I gave was, for instance, this notion of leadership that today is very popular in t- today's societies, whether from a professional perspective, self help leadership capacities when people tell you you have to be a leader or have a leadership character. Well, there has not been that much work done in Islamic scholarship about this topic because it didn't, it wasn't really looked at from that angle. It wasn't looked at from that angle centuries ago. This is a new phenomenon. So someone has to understand it in this new world and then go back to Islamic sources and see how can I Get something from my Islamic sources, from the Holy Quran, from the Ruwayat, from the lives of the Holy Prophet, or Prophets, or the Imams That I can then explain Islamically. This is a non-Islamic notion, and I want to see if Islam has anything to say about it or not. Anyways, so that was the last topic. Now let's go back to our subject. As you remember, What we did in the last few lessons is that we presented the strongest proofs for the existence of God. One of the proofs that we presented was called the proof for the necessary being. The second proof that we presented was to look at the design in the world and see where does that design come from and can it be simple coincidence and random chaos that generates this kind of design in the world, the intentionality, the purpose, or do we need a designer? Okay, so those were the two big proofs. And at the end of it, maybe we can go back and do a bit of review to make sure that those two proofs are well understood. What we're ready to do now, and this was a little bit of a survey that we did in the last lecture, we said, let's see, do you want to spend a little bit more time Discussing proofs for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or do you want to move on to the next topic? So the majority voted for moving on to the next topic So now we're moving to the next topic which is the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And we're going to talk about the attributes of Allah for maybe two to three lectures, and then we keep moving into other topics What do we mean by attribute? An attribute is a term, is a word, you use to describe something. There are different ways of describing something. When I say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, it doesn't really tell me much about what kind of God is it. And at the end we can talk about the importance of this question. But the attributes of Allah, the descriptions that we have of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Help me understand, what kind of God am I going to worship? If I want to worship, what kind of God is it? Is that kind of God worthy of being worshipped or not? Not any God is going to be worthy of worship. So at the end, we'll come back to this one topic. Keep it in mind. So what do we mean by attribute? We mean a description. And as we said, there are different ways to describe something. So let's take any of you guys as an example. If I look at you, I can say, for instance, about you that, let's say you're a human being, you're a boy. Uh, Let me take an example one of you. I'm not going to look at anyone. Maybe someone will recognize themselves. Okay, let's say he's a human being, he's a boy, he's very generous, And he's very talkative, talks a lot, okay? And I will also say, I'm going to describe the person in another way. I'm also going to say that this person is not a plant or an animal or a girl or an alien. Uh, They never stop talking Um, and they are not lazy. Okay? Now, it looks like I just gave a description of someone. But the kind of description that I gave, it's a lot of descriptions. They're not all the same. I can put them in four different buckets. So, I'm looking first of all at one way to describe, is you describe with positive Descriptors or negative Descriptors So when I say he's a boy That's a positive Descriptor If I say he's not a girl That's a negative descriptor It doesn't mean that it's bad or good This is a negative attribute It just means that I'm saying what they're not It doesn't mean that it's bad It's not negative in the sense that it's bad It's negative in the sense that There's a negation We know what it is by knowing what it's not if I say someone is not a girl, I understand they are not a girl. I know what they're not. If I say they're a boy, I understand they're a boy. The, what they are. So that's one way to describe. Another way to describe is to sometimes I look at the thing in itself and without looking at anything else. So if I say you're a human being, I don't need to look at anything else besides you As a human. I only look at you and you are a human. But if I say you're not lazy, or if I say you're generous, or I say you talk a lot, this is not what you are, this is what you do. This means there's a relationship between you and something else. There's an action. There's a recipient of your action. If you're generous, someone is getting that generosity. Someone is receiving. That action. If you talk a lot, you're performing something. So I don't only look at you. I look at you plus. There's a plus. In the words that we're going to use, sometimes when we say the attributes of Allah, we say these are positive attributes of Allah. And sometimes we say these are negative attributes of Allah. That's one distinction. A second distinction Sometimes we say these are attributes of essence, and sometimes we say these are attributes of action. Okay? So if I say you are a human being, I just gave an attribute of essence about you. I'm talking about what you are. But if I say you talk a lot, I'm giving an attribute of action. I'm describing what you do. If I say you're very generous, I'm describing what you do. It's an action. It requires a relationship with something else. Okay? If I say he's not an alien, it's an attribute of essence, but negative. So I'm saying what he's not. If I I say he's not lazy, or he never stops talking, that's a negative attribute of action. He's an alien, negative attribute of essence. Easy enough? Okay. Now let's go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What we said so far is if we go back to the proof of the necessary being, what did we say? We said in order to make the world make any sense, we need one being whose existence is necessary. Do you guys remember this? Okay, so let's take that notion and push it just a little bit further. What else does that mean? Let's take two attributes of that, and then we go into the classic attributes. The first one is that if a being is really necessary, if that being must exist at all times, then that being cannot be inside of time. Or as they say, cannot be temporal. And, that's one. Two, that being cannot be inside of space. Why can't that being be temporal? And why can't that being be inside of space? Things that are inside of space are made up of parts. To be a physical object, you have to be made of parts. And if you are made of parts... It means you rely on those parts to be you. Therefore, you're not a necessary being. You're a conditioned being. Once your conditions are in place, the conditions being all the parts, then you can exist. That's not a necessary being. So the necessary being is therefore simple. Absolutely simple. Simple in what sense? Simple means not made up of parts. In Arabic they say basīṭ. If something is basīṭ in the philosophical meaning of the word, basīṭ or simple, it means not made up of parts, of components. Okay? When I say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is simple or basīṭ, now let's use the terminology we just learned. This is an attribute of essence that is positive. If I say Allah is not made up of parts, I'm saying the same thing. Attribute of essence, but now it's negative. Clear? Okay. Now let's talk about time. If something is inside of time, if something is impacted by time, it means it changes. Anything that is inside of time is going to suffer to feel the effects of time. How do we know that there is time about something? There's change. If there was no change, time would mean absolutely nothing. If something changes, it means that it could have been and it could have not been. Because it's changing. It has to remain as is, always, for it to be a necessary being. If it can change, it could not exist. There could have been a time when it did not exist, and there can be a time and there will be a time when it did not exist because it changes. Therefore, to go back to the same argument, it's not a necessary being. So if something is inside of time, is temporal, it can't be a necessary being. If something is inside of space or physical, it occupies volume and space, then it cannot be a necessary being. So the necessary being is absolutely simple, the necessary being is atemporal, that's the word, non-temporal, not in time, so that's a negative, these are all attributes of essence. I'm not looking at anything else in the world, I'm not looking at any actions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I'm not there yet. I'm just looking at Allah as a necessary being. I can also already deduce those, I can already extract those attributes, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So far so good? Good. Now let's go into a little bit more classic attributes. Let's start right from the beginning. The first attribute of essence that is usually explained about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is knowledge. Al-ilm. So when we use it as an attribute, we say al-alim or al alim Or even al-allam. So if you hear those words All they mean is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge Or is knowledgeable Or has absolute knowledge Okay, so the word is used The declination of the word in in Arabic is used with emphasis Okay, depending on which term you use So Allah is all-knowing Okay, omniscient How do we prove that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge? For every attribute If we want to be rigorous, if we want to be objective, if we want to be methodological, as they say, I'm scientific, I'm discussing with a philosopher, I'm discussing with someone with a very strong reason, I cannot just make claims. Everything that I say needs a proof. Just like I provided proofs for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so if the person I'm discussing with agrees with me, That the proofs are valid They should tell me Okay I now know something exists Called God I know there's a necessary being And if they've been following up to now They now know that it's not a temporal being And it's not a a being that can be Inside of space It's not a physical being What else can we say? So now here's my claim My claim is that This is also a being that has knowledge Okay So how do I prove that? How do I prove that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala has knowledge? I cannot just make empty claims. One of the things that you should always keep in mind, and there's a few of them, but I don't want to just lump them all together because we won't have enough examples. So as I give them to you, keep them in mind, and at the end we're going to have a few principles that we can now generalize to all the other attributes. One of the things that you should always keep in mind, Is the same argumentation that we used to prove the existence of God was what? The necessary being, everything needs a cause if it's contingent, right? If something is not necessary, it needs to come from somewhere. So the first thing I should do, without making things too complicated and too philosophical, one of the first things I should always do, or from discussing with someone is ask them to do, is look around in the world, and explained where things come from. So there are things in the world. I've explained their existence, the things themselves, the entities that are, you know, galaxies, and cells, animals, planets. Those, they've now been explained. But there are other things in the world. For instance, knowledge. Every human being instinctively understands what knowledge is. It's kind of impossible to define and explain what knowledge is. You can find some definitions in the dictionary, but really you don't need them. As a human being, if you are aware of something, and of course you are, if you are a sane, fully functional human being, you have awareness of things. That awareness is knowledge knowledge is one of those very few very fundamental notions that cannot be reduced to something simpler knowledge is one of them existence is another and that's why some philosophers write very very thick books called being okay because these notions seem very simple and they're very complex too and the more you understand them and you understand how they are manifested the deeper your thinking is about the world. Anyways, so let's go back to knowledge. When we look at the world, we encounter something called knowledge. We have it. We all have knowledge. We are aware of things. If you encounter something in the world, you have to be explained where it comes from. So in the case of knowledge, where does it come from? We cannot just take it as we know it in ourselves. Animals, some animals can be said maybe to have knowledge. It's not human knowledge. Humans have a lot more knowledge, and not all humans have the same type of knowledge, the same quality, the same quantity, that changes, right? But we know there's something fundamental that's the same. It can change in quantity or quality, but it's the same. That's knowledge. The issue with human knowledge is always deficient. It's always incomplete. It's always imperfect. So we know we can't just take that and project it on God and say that's God's knowledge. But we, what we can do, what we're sure that we have to do, is that we do encounter knowledge in the world, and it must come from somewhere, and if that somewhere is not the necessary being, we have a problem. Because we're going to have to fall into the same issue which is infinite regress or the vicious circle. That's how you link knowledge back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a lot of other proofs. That's probably one of the easiest ones. The second proof, let's add another proof. We presented two proofs for the existence of God. The first one was the necessary being. And we just use that one to prove knowledge. Okay. The second proof was what? For the existence of God. The engineer. Design, design. The design. The engineer. Okay. If we understand that argument properly, if we understand that the world has design and it needs a designer, we said the strength of that argument is that it not only proves the existence of God, but it proves some of his attributes. To be a designer, able to design this universe, would God not need some knowledge? How much knowledge? Everything. Everything. Everything we know and we know how much we don't know. All of that has to be part of that initial knowledge. And who knows how much more, but at least that part. And that way we prove the knowledge of God. By reusing the same one, now I prove to you that God exists, depending on which proof I used, now I can prove that God has knowledge. And that's how we prove one of the main attributes of essence, positive attributes of essence. We say Allah, Alim, or Alam, or Alim. Allah has knowledge. Allah is knowledgeable. Allah is omniscient. Okay? Let's move to a second attribute power. So, what's power? What do we mean when we say Allah has power? I want you to concentrate here because power is made up of three things that we have to combine together. The first one, three things. The first one in power is that I have an intention. Okay? If I have an intention, I have a will, I can decide. Okay? That decision is part of power. I have a power to have a will. One. Two, I have to have ability. I could will to fly, but I don't have the ability to fly. So that's not power to fly. I do not have the power to fly. So that's not enough. The third thing, so I have will, I have ability, and I have to have choice or freedom. Maybe someone could look at a piece of paper and say, wow, it has the power to fly. No, it doesn't have the choice to fly. The air made it fly. Does not count? Does the sun have a choice to shine? No. Its nature is to shine. We cannot really say about the sun that it has the power to shine. It's not an act of free will. You need the intention to do the action. You need the ability to do what you intend to do. And you need the freedom, the free choice to do it like you want, when you want. Otherwise, it's not power. Yeah. Uh,
0: Isn't the third... uh the Third uh, thing of power and the first thing of power, like the same thing because like saying something has to have a will means that uh, like I th- I means that something is doing something on its like choice basically freedom of choice, isn't that the same thing as the third one?
1: You can have freedom without the awareness or the premeditation or the planning. Let's say.
0: Oh, so like the the first one is basically. Uh, like uh, like wanting to have achieve a goal.
1: Exactly, yes. That's why I said will or intention or intentionality. Mm-hmm. Purpose. You can create your own purpose. See. And you have the freedom to exercise their ability. Okay? Mm-hmm. We're just breaking down. We can break it down more. But we're just breaking down the notion of power. So that if someone says Allah has power or doesn't have power, we know what we're talking about. Okay, so does God have power? We need to prove it. So again, first way to do it, we can look at the world. Are there things with power or not? Same argumentation. One. Two, we can use the same argumentation from the proof from design. We said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if He is the designer of the world, if He is the one who put the design of the world in place, in addition to having the knowledge to put it in place he must have the power to put it in place right therefore that's the second attribute of essence positive attribute of essence yeah
0: um like i understand there because like uh, he say like the because he, he because he designed it he needs to have like the knowledge of it but I don't, I don't see how that proves how he has unlimited knowledge, and I don't see like he may, like somebody might say, okay, he ha- he only has enough knowledge to make this place, but he doesn't have unlimited knowledge. So what's the proof for him to? And same thing, same goes with power. So what's the proof for the unlimitedness?
1: The unlimited proof has to have a lot more complex argumentation, and that's why I'm avoiding it. Mm-hmm. I'm proving enough. So that you can argue for yourself and for someone else that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge, has power. One way to do it is to show that there are no limitations. That's kind of the easy way to do it. So if I show for something not to be able to do something, there has to be something that prevents it. For me not to have full knowledge, there has to be something that prevents me from having full knowledge. It could be my intellectual capacity. It could be I don't have access to the things to be known. It could be that, you know, my brain is limited. I wasn't raised properly. Blah, blah, blah. Right? There's a something that prevents me. There's an obstacle. Same thing with power. For me not to have absolute power, there has to be something that prevents me from having that power. When we start combining these together, you see that... There cannot be any limitation. There's other proofs, but those are usually explained very, very detailed in philosophy books that I'm trying to avoid. Okay? That's why I didn't use those words yet. I didn't say the unlimited, the all-knowing, all-powerful. All All I said until now is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge, has power. And I need enough to explain the world. And that's what I have until now. Right? I want to add one more proof for the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This one, you guys will remember over there, because we talked about it a lot. This one is an instinctive proof that is sometimes mentioned for the power of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa And the instinctive proof is human beings, when they're stuck and in a situation of deep difficulty, instinctively they go back to something in which they have hope that can get them out of any situation. No matter how impossible that seems And this means You instinctively believe In something with that kind of power To be able to pull you out of any situation That's the instinctive proof For the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala And of course the instinctive proof Can also be used for the knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala But we didn't use it Okay, so far so good? Two quick objections about knowledge, about power. The first one, and we've talked a little bit about this, but let's mention it again. Let's flip the argument and talk about what you just said. So, is God's power truly infinite, or are there things to which it does not apply? So here, we have to distinguish between two types of things. A thing needs to be logical for it to be a thing. Otherwise, we cannot use power on something that is impossible. And I think we use the example here in at least one of the lectures. Let's use it again. When someone came to one of the imams and asked him, Is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala able to take the entire universe and put it inside an egg without shrinking the universe or expanding the egg? And the Imam replied, saying, It's not that God cannot do it. It's not that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't have the power to do this. What you are asking cannot be. You're asking something that doesn't have sense. Another way to understand this, not to say it's logically impossible because it's abstract. Another way to understand this, is that the thing receiving the power... In this case, the universe and the egg Must be able to receive the power In this case, what? The power is This big thing Fitting into the small thing But there's a condition Maybe I didn't mention the condition The condition is that without shrinking Without changing the size of the egg Or changing the size of the universe Well, That's impossible If I don't change the size The egg cannot take it The universe cannot take it. What you're asking for is an impossible, logically impossible. It's a logical impossibility. Those things, yeah, you cannot apply the power of God to them. The thing that is receiving the power cannot be. If you say, can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create another God like Him? It's impossible. The definition does not work. If he's created, He cannot be a God like Him. That's it. It doesn't work. So the definition does not work. Those things, power does not apply to them. Okay? That's one. Two, because this was a very big problem before, and we'll maybe talk about it again in a couple of lectures. Can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala take all the people who are believers on, in the afterlife and throw them in hell? Because this was actually a very big topic centuries ago between Islamic theologians. Some of them said no, and some of them said yes. And the answer is, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can take everybody. Believers and non-believers and throw them into hell. But the question is not, can he? The question is not, does he have the power to? It's, would he? And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never Because he promised he would never He explained what his rules, rules are He explained the principles With which he imposed them On himself and on us And he said I will respect those principles If you do this, I do that If you do this, I do that Okay, so those are some Questions about power in general The last attribute And we finish with this one The last attribute is the attribute Of life So does this God, the necessary being, does this God who is the designer of the universe, who has knowledge and who has power, does he have life? Can we say about God that he has life? Just like we said about God that he has knowledge and he has power. Okay, so what's life? When we look at plants or some very, very simple creatures, we can say about them that they have life okay they might have some growth and development they may have some sort of sensory or sensitivity sensory sensitivity okay that's very simple creatures if we move to more, more complex creatures like some animals for instance we say they have a little bit more first of all they have more awareness that's animals and they ma- they have more freedom So life does not only, is not limited to the notion of the development and growth. There's something else being added here. And why is that important? Because we said the necessary being cannot be temporal. So it's not about the development and growth component. That one, let's put it aside. Maybe it's because it's a biological entity with a birth and death that has to go through that cycle that we have that growth. But that doesn't apply to a necessary being. So let's put that aside. What's left in life? What's left is awareness and will. Awareness and power. Awareness and freedom. And the more complex the creature, the more we see of that. If you look at an animal, they have a lot more awareness than a plant. Maybe a plant has some awareness. A lot of studies are showing that they are aware of certain things. And perhaps the plants can do things, very, very limited things, but they can actually do them. But not to the extent like an animal can. And if you look at a human being, the amount, the level, the the quality and quantity of the awareness rises exponentially. It's huge compared to an animal. An animal is never going to appreciate art ...or understand charity work. That's because of the level of awareness between a human being and an animal. And the same thing about the freedom. Yes, animals do have some freedom. But their biological instincts are so strong that they basically dictate pretty much almost all of their behavior. If you look at a human being, while some human beings live like animals and maybe they follow these biological instincts instinctively and automatically, a human being has the capacity to basically override and to have a lot more free choice, a lot more freedom about even those hardwired biological instincts. So what we have is life being what? Being two things. Being a high or higher level of awareness, And a higher level of freedom to act. Okay, until now, what did we say? What we proved are two things for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We proved that Allah has knowledge, and we proved that Allah has power. What's awareness? Awareness is knowledge. And what's power? Power is this freedom to act. So life is basically these two attributes that we already proved, which are knowledge and power, combined together. That gives us life. So if I prove that Allah has knowledge and Allah has power, I've proved that Allah subhanahu ta'ala has life. Okay? That's the easy way. That's an easier way to prove life for Allah. SWT.
0: but uh, pretty sure they don't have
1: awareness, or do they? Or they have some. Okay. You know, like when they say, for instance, they are aware that the... I don't know the, where the sun is, where the light of the sun is, so they'll move to, to be closer to that. Or if you put some music beside them, they will grow in a different way than if there is no music, or if you talk to them or take care of them. There's a lot of studies on this now. So we cannot say that they have zero awareness. But of course, that's a very, very rudimentary understanding of what awareness is. But there's something, of a sensory yeah. action reaction. Yeah. Um. I'm. I.
0: I probably seeing life as wrong. So correct me if, I, if my definition is wrong. But like, I. I see that, that if something has life, that means it could die. Because like, uh, so what did that mean? That like God like, he like. Like, is, would that be wrong now? Because now that I think of it, it's kind of wrong. Because if something is is not living, then it's not there. Like, uh, if it's not, li- no, it's not not that it's not there. That means it doesn't have awareness and it doesn't have uh, all those things, which mean, like, no, uh, like of course God is not gonna die, for Allah. So, uh, so basically, I'm wrong in that sense.
1: So what did we say before? We said we have to look at the world And explain its phenomena And we have to understand where they come from So let's look at life When I find something Let's t- go back to the example of knowledge What did I say? I said when we look around When I look at myself Or I look at other human beings Or I look at the universe What I find is that There is something called knowledge ilm, knowledge needs to come from somewhere. Except that the knowledge I encounter in the world is always imperfect. For instance, if someone is walking behind that wall right now, I don't know anything about it. I can't see behind the wall. So if I start looking at the types of knowledge that I see, I see that they're deficient, they're incomplete, they're imperfect. I have to think about the same thing, and eliminate those imperfections. Get rid of the parts that would not be compatible with a necessary being. They would be inconsistent, they would be contradictory with a necessary being. So, the knowledge that I encounter in the world is imperfect. Okay, so I can, can I say that the necessary being does not have knowledge? No, it means I'm using a restriction that doesn't apply to him. It means that's not the reality of knowledge. It means the knowledge that I have is incomplete. There are other types of knowledge, other people, other entities, that will have a much more complete knowledge than mine. And they would probably be able to see behind the wall. I can't. So now if I take that as an example, what did I do? I took the notion and I removed the parts that are incomplete, deficient, imperfect, and I'm left with something that is compatible with the necessary being. Let's go to life. There is one part of life that we're all accustomed to because we see it in biological things. Biological things have a birth and death, biological things grow, they have a cycle. They reproduce to come into existence. And when they come into existence, they have to sustain themselves, get energy somewhere, and, and, and. Okay? These are biological entities. That's one way to look at life. But then I looked at life and I saw things that have life, it's not all the same life. Some things have more in their life. The awareness is much more complex, much more complete. The freedom is much more complete. Okay, okay. And what about this thing, the biological part? Well, it cannot apply because it's a restriction. If I could find life in things, if I could say of something that it's alive and it still doesn't need birth and death, and I could imagine that, something that is not born to come into existence, something that does not die after it exists, and I can still say about it that it has life, all I'm saying is it has awareness And it has free will to act. Or in other words, it has knowledge and it has power. And that's Allah subhanahu wa
0: ta'ala. I can only imagine it though. But I can prove it with theory because of the necessary being proof and all that. So I can't imagine it with logic. Like, like, it's true, like I can't, like, uh, like, uh, no, like uh, literally I can't bring it into existence with the logic because it's logic.
1: But you're being restricted by biology.
0: Yes.
1: You're limiting life to biology.
0: That's like, I see what you mean. It's like, it's like uh, I'm using science, but in the wrong way. Yeah.
1: Hmm. You're limiting yourself to something. And this, if you understand it properly, this what I'm explaining, and you know how to apply it, it's going to open a lot of issues for you. It's going to resolve a lot of issues for you in religion. If you understand the notions by removing all the imperfections from them, what you're left with is something different, and it makes you see the world differently. Because you start thinking in terms of notions, of the concept, of the idea in a pure form. If I say the word Qalam, and I only think about the wood pencil, and one day I encounter a mechanical pencil... Say, does it apply? Yeah, it's because I'm too restricted in what a pencil is. But if I think in terms of ideas and I forget the substance, the way it works, and in my mind the qalam is something with which it's a tool, it's an instrument that I can write with, then I'm not surprised and I I can easily apply the notion of the qalam to something that writes. For instance, a mechanical pencil or something else. For instance, for Arabic, it's Qalam is not necessarily pencil, it could be a pen, could be a feather, it could be a piece of wood, it doesn't matter what it is. In fact, if you go to the Qur'an and it says Nun wal Qalam, you go to our reports, our riwayat, and they say al Qalam is a malik. It's an angel. It doesn't look like a pencil or a pen. But the role of that angel is to write everything. Everything that has ever happened and everything that will ever happen... But because of the role of that angel, which is what? It's like he's transcribing in our world to understand it. It would mean it's like he's writing down everything. The Quran refers to him as Qalam. Okay? That's if you learn how to think in terms of the idea. What's being performed? Now, it can take this shape, this form. It could take this shape or this form. If you take the notion of life, the idea of life, and put it into a biological entity, then it's going to have life and death. But if I took the idea of life and put it into something else, which unfortunately we don't really encounter in our world, then there wouldn't be life and death, because it wouldn't be a biological entity. The nature of a biological entity, if you can think about a biological entity on its own, would would require life and death. So if I gave it life, it's going to have a birth and a death. If I found a way to think about something else and put life into it, maybe it doesn't need a birth and a death as part of its definition of life. Okay. Okay, maybe finish with this one. There's, the, the rest will continue the next time, yeah? I just have a question. Yeah. For example printer have not like a printer, but like a, like any machine that could decide to do something and actually um, and have a, some sort of awareness, would it consider to have light as well? Right. Yes. But I don't see that happening, but yes. You have to find a way to put awareness into that machine. I mean uh, like for sure. example, like a printer and would have an error. Like it would notice for example there's no paper in the paper tray it would have awareness of that, right? No. No, no, no. No, that's not freedom. That's an action-reaction, electrical impulse. There's something there is not... It's a sensor. No, that's why we talked about freedom. That's why I said there's a piece of paper that's blown by the wind. I can't say it has power to fly. I can't say of the sun that it has power to shine. That's not really power. Yeah, if you go there... Yeah, that's why I'm like... If you found a way to put those two so the machine has freedom to act, not based on the two the algorithm of two outputs you gave it, you know, zero and one. Okay, if the machine actually has freedom to act, like some of the movies, you will have it. yes, okay, that would that count as life. It's one form of life, no issue with that. And the issue right now is in science, they're trying to restrict it to the biological sense and say that's only. The only definition of life is this biological one because they're term, they're not thinking in the idea of what it means. Yeah, okay. One last thing and we'll stop here for today. When we look and it should help you for all the attributes. So today we took three attributes and I intentionally did, did it in this order and I ended with life. Okay, these are three very important attributes. Why are they so important? Because if you knew how, and we'll, we can talk a little bit more about that in the next lectures, you can derive the other attributes from them. Or, to do it the other way around, you can bring them back up into them. You can collapse them into them. So if suddenly we start talking about Allah all hearing, Allah al-Basir, all seeing, well these are forms of knowledge. So if I understood Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as being knowledgeable, it'll be very easy for me to go into Samiya and basir. And when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a hundred names, a hundred attributes, or even more, and we've talked a little bit about those, well all of them are collapsible into each other. And so when you see in our reports, in our wayat that some of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala are greater than others. What do we mean? Why are they greater? Why do they tell you in this dua, use this attribute of Allah, not that one? Because these are the attributes into which all the others collapse. So if you understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge, you've already included a number of other attributes. If you understand Allah's power, you've already included a lot of Allah's attributes. Those other attributes only talk about themselves. You don't collapse other things into them. The ones that you collapse everything into are the three that we talked about today. More than that. If the interpretation that we gave is correct today, we should be able to collapse The three that we gave into one today. Right? So, everything that we just said, we said knowledge, power, and life. But we said life, really what it is, is knowledge and power. So now we've reduced the attributes of essence to life. So now we can say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of his greatest attributes of essence is al hayy And that's why al hayy becomes an extremely great attribute of Allah. It's used in narrations, it's used in invocations, in ad'iyah, in dhikr. The Sufis have entire dhikr where they repeat the word endlessly until they go into a frenzy. Why? Why is there insistence? Because of this because you start understanding how they fit into each other and you understand, for instance, the significance of a verse of the Quran when it says al hayy al-qayyum why that verse is considered so great because it encompasses all the teachings in a few words so the word "Hayy" in surah al- al-kursi basically is encompassing all the attributes of essence and perhaps al-qayyum is encompassing all the attributes of action but that's another topic okay so let's stop here and then we can have a little bit more of a discussion if you sh- if you would like wa sallallahu <laughs> wa wa